Have you ever wondered why exactly it is that things usually sound better at home than they do on stage, in auditions, or even in lessons? It's easy to chalk it up to nerves or assume that you just have to practice more or get more performance experience. And sure, those things certainly are part of the puzzle, but a lot of times that's not really the true root cause. If you've been confused by the inconsistency of your performances, I put together a free four-minute quiz called the Mental Skills Audit, which will help you pinpoint your mental strengths and weaknesses and figure out what exactly to adjust and tweak in your preparation for more consistently optimal performances. You can take the Mental Skills Audit online at bulletproofmusician.com MSA. That's MSA for Mental Skills Audit. And again, it's 100% free, and it'll take just four minutes to get your results emailed to you as a PDF. This is Noah Kageyama, and you're listening to the Bulletproof Musician Podcast. Every Sunday morning, we'll take a look at a new research-based tip or technique to help you practice more effectively or perform better under pressure. And on the first Sunday of every month, I'll have a guest from the music, sport, or research world who will share their insights on how we can all be a little more awesome in the practice room and on stage. Today, I'll be chatting with trombonist Jason Solomon, who's on the faculty of Troy University in Troy, Alabama. In this month's conversation, you'll hear Jason explain why learning and practicing difficult passages slowly can actually be counterproductive, and how practicing them at tempo can actually be more efficient and effective. We'll get into some of the motor learning research that lends some support to this type of practice, and talk about how exactly to do it. Because at-tempo practice done right is not at all the same as the kind of at-tempo practice we all did in our younger years that reinforced bad habits and drove our teachers crazy. Before we begin today's episode, though, I want to play an excerpt of a video that Jason recorded and uploaded to YouTube a few years back. I allude to this video a number of times in the episode, and so I think it'll make more sense if you listen to this first. One of the more common ways to do that would be to slow the metronome down to a point where one can play it successfully, and then slowly kicking up the metronome and developing the ability to play it. And that would be a way to make sure that you're getting all of the articulations you want, uh, making sure that the pitch is where it needs to be, and that you have a consistent style of play. I disagree with this being a, a good methodology to use because I do think it has limitations and diminishing returns. I think there's a faster way to get the results. In embodied cognitive science, or in basic motor learning motor control, we have to coordinate motor patterns at a faster tempo. By slowing the metronome down, we might actually be changing the kinematics of what we're doing. We might actually be using different amounts of force production and ratios of muscular engagement in each individual movement of a key or a slide or a valve, whatever, what have you. And then when we speed up the tempos, we might find that what worked at those slower tempos is no longer going to be acceptable because we just can't get the job done quickly enough. From a neurological standpoint, same things happen. We have neurological pathways that are formed. Synaptic connections happen between neurons that travel through different regions of the brain. So if you're talking about information processing or cognitive neuroscience, we're talking about the way that the brain gets activated when we learn something. That includes motor learning, so doing things, moving our muscles. When we provide an environment where there's a lot of extra time, when you space things out, like when you slow down a metronome, there's all this extra neurological connection that can happen between events. It can actually go through different regions of the brain and access different modalities. And that's why we have time to consciously think about every single note we're playing. 
as we speed the metronome up, however, and as we get closer to goal tempo, there becomes a point, a ceiling effect, if you will, where that neurological pathway will not be able to physically, biologically, make it from point A to point B in the allotted time that we have. So then the brain figures out ways to streamline new neurological pathways, and it avoids a lot of the conscious processing centers of the brain. So we don't consciously think about every note we're playing. A lot of times what will happen is as you're preparing, a, let's say, a recital or an audition, you'll work up a difficult lick and you'll get to the point where you can play it really well, and then someone says, well, what are the notes in there? And you say to yourself, I don't know. I, I have to go back and think about it. And then you go back and consciously think about it. It's because you're now having to go access different ways of thinking about it. The conscious parts of the brain were kind of removed because they took too long. So by slowing the metronome down, we open up all sorts of possibilities to kind of let these other ways creep in that we're eventually going to have to fix. Why don't we just cut out the middleman and start with a methodology that gets the goal tempo in mind right away? Um, as a brass player in particular, you also have to take in into consideration uh, embouchure adjustments that are made all the time. We use multiple embouchures, whether we know it or not. Most of the time we don't even know it. But we have to navigate range of the instrument. When we slow things down, we allot for extra time to do so. So it might not create a method that works at the goal tempo. And so sometimes people can reach a, a ceiling where if you've got to play it at 100 beats a minute, you practice it at 50 beats a minute, and you get really good at 50 and 60 and 70, and then all of a sudden you just can't get over 75 beats a minute because the way in which you learned, you know, from an embouchure or motor standpoint, it just can't get the job done any faster. So you essentially have to retrain yourself how to do it, and that can be a frustrating process. There's a whole lot more to this video, of course, and I've linked to it in the show notes at bulletproofmusician.com blog. But I think that's enough to give you the gist of what Jason presents in the video. So now let's shift over to the part of the episode where I asked Jason to expand on the rationale behind this at-tempo practice technique. I can't say that I did a lot of slow practice or metronome practice growing up, but at least I knew that I was supposed to. And so I had some degree of guilt over not doing more of that sort of thing. And eventually there did come a time where I finally did introduce some slow practice and a little bit of metronome into my routine. But looking back at it, a, I don't think I was doing slow practice correctly or very well to begin with. And even so, it didn't seem to help as much as I expected that it might or that it should. And so relatively recently, maybe in the last handful of years, I started coming across some folks like percussionist Rob Knopper or horn player Eric Rowski or mandolin player Andy Wood who have described engaging in at-tempo practice, even from the very beginning stages of learning a new piece. So that was kind of intriguing to me. That's not something that I'd ever heard. I mean, certainly like I did a lot of at-tempo practice in a very disorganized, undisciplined sort of way, but these people were talking about it in a very systematic, organized, strategic kind of way. And the logic of it makes sense. And then I came across your video where you really go into some of the motor learning aspects of it. And so that then made me even more intrigued because now I want to know more about like what's the rationale behind it like how does it work and all those kinds of things so I'm not sure where the best place to start is but maybe you could just kind of tell those who aren't sure what I'm talking about how you came to this notion of at tempo practice and what some of the the rationale behind it is sure yeah yeah I would love to it's um it's definitely out of all the things, out of all the bags of uh, snake oil that I have in my snake oil bag and I try to sell out there in the world, it's the one that has garnered kind of the most uh, intrigue because some people love it, some people hate it, some people just don't, you know, want to know more. So 
in my studies of kinesiology, I came across a, a fair amount of research regarding speed accuracy trade-off. And that's something that's usually a good starting point, especially with musicians, because we all understand the concept that if, if you were to go faster, you're probably going to be less accurate and you're going to make more errors. And um, that is exactly what the research has kind of shown. Fitz Posner, they put together this landmark study, it was like in the 50s, where they basically had like two spaces, and then they had like an electric like stylus, and test subjects would go back and forth between the two distances, essentially just trying to go as fast as possible, and when they went really fast, they started making more and more errors, less accuracy. And then they started doing math and figuring out, okay, the size of the targets versus the distance apart that the targets are, that really is what matters. It doesn't matter how small or big the targets are, it's how small or big they are combined with how far apart they are. But from that, everybody seems to have hung their hat on the entire general blanket idea of, you know, go slower to like learn things because you'll be more accurate and you won't make as many errors and we don't want to make errors in the learning process. That's another bone of contention I have uh, for different reasons. But I think that kind of became the scientific grounding behind, like, slow things down. And you'll be more accurate, and then, you, you know, you slowly pick up the tempo, and you, you'll be okay. But when I started digging into the research, I started realizing that there, there kind of were some massive holes behind the way those studies were set up and how specifically they were examining that paradigm. And, and one of the things that I bring up consistently with musicians in particular is, you know, when those studies were being done, you were often given like, go as fast as possible, or go as accurately as possible. You were never told that you were going to have to do it at 144 beats a minute, because that's what Wagner wrote. That didn't come into the equation. There was never a goal in mind that you were going to have to get to, and then your accuracy was going to be determined at that constraint of time. And I think that, that that's one of the ways that it's kind of a game changer. If your goal needs to be accuracy at a faster tempo, then I think that that changes the way that you need to kind of develop along the way. So I kind of had these ideas, these doubts, if you will, from the concept of slowing it down to be more accurate and having that be a good you know, method for learning. I kind of had those doubts when I was studying motor learning, motor control. But fortunately, and I guess just as a brief aside, I was very fortunate that my advisor in the motor learning motor control area, his wife was the chair of the modern dance department at Indiana University. So he, and he, he'd kind of been there and done that in terms of research. So he was really leaning more in his mind with interest in the arts uh, in terms of research, because what he found in the sports side, everything was all sports, as it was sports or military. And, and, and what he had found with the decades of his research was the strongest person is going to do a better job. Like when you get down to it with a lot of the, you know, the physiology research, a lot of that stuff, it, you know, Usain Bolt is stronger in some ways than other sprinters. And so he beats them. But when you get over to like the arts side where it's less about strength per se, and there's actually more nuance in terms of methodology, you start seeing all of these interesting and messy things to study. And so he was very open-minded toward not only the arts, but, um, setting up a curriculum that exposed me to a lot of different areas. So I actually took a couple of like cognitive science and neuroscience courses while doing that degree program. So when I started getting over to the neuroscience side, I started getting exposed to different neurological 
you know, experiments and the way that they study with functional magnetic resonance imaging or fMRI. And there I started finding some studies on something called the neurodynamics of automated behavior. And that blew my mind because what that was examining was as neurological pathways are formed when we learn how to do something, over time and over repetition, eventually the brain biologically just starts streamlining those pathways to essentially make them shorter or shorter. Now, you could argue it's a kind of a chicken or an egg. Is it that we make decisions that make those path line, path, uh, pathways streamlined? Or is it that those pathways just get streamlined in the process and therefore things get better and better? Law of accommodation kind of a thing. But no matter how you slice it, people studying this kind of stuff were finding that in early stages, neurological pathways and synaptic connections could be seen through slower, more cumbersome regions of the brain. But as things got automated, that completely washed away. And then you had these really fast, really streamlined neurological synaptic connections through very quick and very short pathways that went through completely different regions of the brain. And most of them were not conscious regions of the brain. And tying that into my own experience, I thought, well, that kind of makes sense. When you start learning something, everything's very conscious. You're thinking about every decision. You're experiencing everything. You're perceiving everything. And then as you get more and more you know, um, autonomous with it or mastered with it, there are things you just kind of don't think about. I mean, like the violin player that knows a really tricky pattern and has completely forgotten what the notes are. It's just turned into this thing that they do. And if you think about it neurologically, those conscious regions of the brain are just no longer part of the activation. They're just kind of pruned out. And so I thought, well, if everything needs to have this you know, dramatic paradigm shift to consolidation at some point, wouldn't it make sense to just start in a way that put the pathways kind of in that zone to begin with. And so that really kind of led me to this concept of saying, well, how would you do that? You would have to constrain time. You'd have to constrain the distance in between events. And maybe you do a small number of events and then you add more and more events, but time becomes the great constraint. And so that totally changed the way that I practice because as a child, I learned slow the metronome down. I mean, the number of pieces that I would play at half tempo just to make sure every note was right. Um, and then I would slowly, you know, kick up the metronome. And, and also, I think psychologically, uh, there's not to dive into too many tangents at once, but uh, from a psychological standpoint, there's kind of this explore versus this exploit paradigm of how we make decisions and how we do things. You could argue that people that stay so long in one track, uh, exploiting a certain you know resource or a certain methodology, those might be more of your OCD-minded people. And then people that bop around from method to method to method, they get bored quickly with this and that. We could call maybe those more of an ADD mindset in terms of the way that they practice. I am very much over on the OCD side. I'm like way over there. So from a psychological standpoint, it would be very gratifying. I'd get little hits of dopamine and it would be great for me to just slow down the metronome, play it well, kick up the metronome one notch, play it well. I'm getting all these victories and I'm totally fine with the the pedantic nature of that that method. So for someone like me, I think it was even more profoundly important to kind of stumble onto this neurodynamic concept of practice. And there might be some other people that are on the other side of the fence that say, yeah, I guess that makes sense. But it's not as big of a deal for them because they kind of, you know, bop around and maybe they play things at tempo more quickly anyway. But that's just kind of a little bit of background behind how I kind of stumbled onto it, how I applied it to my own practicing and kind of how I use it in my teaching. I think the most accurate scientific subject that encapsulates it is neurodynamics, which is kind of a, a little 
I don't know if it's, 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 if it's its own industry or its own field yet, but it, you know, it's in the cognitive science realm. And I think motor learning, motor control was kind of my gateway drug into that, that area. But I do think that there are motor concerns when you think about it kinematically and you think about the ways that like the muscles in your body have to coordinate when you move. And violin and trombone are both very, they're physical instruments. There's a fair amount of movement that's involved. So when you think about how every one of those muscles works in concert with every other muscle, if you do it at half tempo and you do it at full tempo, the recipe probably changes between how much of this muscle is a part of the equation versus how much of that muscle is a part of the equation. Uh, so I do think that there are some kinematic concerns as well. You know, and as a wind player, there are breathing concerns. When you slow things down, there are embouchure concerns. Every time you take a breath, you're going to shift things around uh, to make it more accommodating for psychologically what you know is coming down the, you know, down the pipe. And so I think for wind players, it also makes a big difference. So that, you know, all these different kinds of domains all just kind of led into this whole yeah this really makes a lot of sense like neurologically it makes sense kinematically it makes sense uh, physiologically it makes sense psychologically it makes sense and so you know the older i get and the longer i go down this path uh, the more i wished i stumbled onto that stuff earlier in my training and development you know i was in my 30s you know when i found all that stuff out and i remember thinking man if i knew this in middle school i would have i would have been a really awesome middle school trombonist but uh, i probably would have you know uh, climb the ranks or, you know, gotten better and better uh, more quickly in my practicing and probably would have stumbled on to some of those, those great equalizing roadblocks uh, that, you know, if there's something in your playing, that's like a limit for you in some way, like a, a technical or a mechanical limit, uh, brass player, sometimes it can be embouchure or whatever, the way that your face is making sound. You kind of want to stumble on that. I think it's easier to stumble on that when you're like 16, 17 years old. And then you can say, okay, let's fix this now. Because uh, if you stumble on that later, uh, it, can, it can be a harder habit to kind of change or replace. So I guess that's kind of a good data dump on that. So, I mean, essentially we're talking about the fact that when we play something slow, we might be utilizing motor movements that aren't actually viable at tempo. So we are in this essence creating bad habits that are functional mm -hmm. at a certain tempo, but are no longer functional or effective at a different tempo that is actually our goal or target tempo, which then requires extra time to kind of unlearn and then adopt new motor behaviors that are actually more effective at that tempo. I did hear a violin teacher once say that when you do slow things down, make sure that you're still playing it the way you would at tempo but sometimes it's hard to know if we've never played it at tempo. Right. And, and so you talked about constraints and making sure we don't sacrifice accuracy, but also don't sacrifice speed. So, so maybe this would be a good time to get into the nuts and bolts of like, well, how do you do this? Like, how do you play at tempo without making a mess of everything? Like I did when I was a kid and just completely undisciplined sloppiness all around, but sure. at tempo. Right. Well, and there, there are absolutely aspects that are going to be really hard to do in this in this way. And I think you're absolutely right. It is a matter of scaling. Like when you play it slow and then you try to just scale it up to tempo, it's not a perfect scale. Like it doesn't just, it's not like you have like a, a miniature model of a building that you made out of like popsicle sticks and Legos. And then it looks just like the big building that, you know, like the real building. There's not a little tiny bathroom in there with running water. Like it doesn't work the same way. It may look like a, like a shell of an example, but it doesn't scale. Like that isn't exactly what scales up. It just kind of looks like it does. And I think you're right. Constraint is the big deal. You know, we're talking about constraining time, not just accuracy. 
So a lot of the ways that I tend to approach learning a new piece of music, and it's very important to kind of throw this caveat in there. I'm not talking about everything we practice. There are absolutely things that you have to slow down to sort out. Anytime that you're trying to replace a physical habit, you have to slow it down. It has to be very slow and very methodical, and it is supposed to be very conscious. Like you have to be very aware of every decision you're making because if you start kind of phoning it into autopilot, you are going to default to those old habits that you're trying to replace. So in the process of learning repertoire or learning fast passages or learning things that are very technically demanding, the best thing that I have done or have found is uh, something called chaining. And that's where you take a very small bit of information, a very small bit of physical you know, stuff that you have to do, and you master it. And then you take another very small bit. And then when you have these two done, you can then put them together. So you now have a bigger bit that is scaled up. But it's just, it's at very, very, you know, it's at the tempo that it needs to be. So if it's, I often use examples of like 16th note passages. So let's say you have just a slew of 16th notes. Well, take the first two 16th notes and just play them. Booty, 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 you know, and just over and over until it becomes a very comfortable, very meaningful thing. And then add the next one, add the next one, add the next one until, and you know, once you have three, then you go to four and then you go to five. And there's different ways that you can chain. You can start at the end of a passage where, you know, adding notes before it. You can start in the middle, adding notes either side. You know, you can learn the first beat and then put in a beat of rest and then learn the second beat and put in a beat of rest and then learn the third beat and put in a beat of rest. So you're going um, one e into two, two e into three, three e into four, four e into one. So you're doing it at tempo, but you're giving you're, you're you're accommodating the need for time in between to kind of reset and regroup before you kind of attack the next one. But eventually, you can start removing that extra time. So what you're doing is you're keeping the context of time in place with the part that you're playing. You're just allowing yourself a chance to kind of reset. You know, the physical example of that I think would be interval training. Like if you want to run a four minute mile, you have to do four laps around the track basically at sixty seconds each, right? One minute each. So if you want to run a four-minute mile, you've got to get good at, at getting that 60-second pace down. So you might do an interval workout where you do eight laps, each in their own individual time, and you put like a minute in between. You might run a 60-second lap and then put a minute of rest, and then run a 60-second lap and put a minute of rest. You might do six or seven or eight of those to develop a physical feel you know, as well as con- physical conditioning for what it feels like to run at that speed. And then you, you, try, you try to put them together. And there are fatigue issues, I know. So it's not a perfect example. But, but I think in some ways, it's the same concept of just kind of giving yourself that little extra space. So I find that that's, that's kind of um, a, a more effective way to do it. And one of the things that I love about teaching is that some of my students, I mean, I, I think that the generation younger than us, whether it's a micro generation of like the students we're teaching or, you know, people five, six, eight years younger than us, or it's actually a legitimate like full generation younger than us, I think they are and are going to be far more creative than us. They're hopefully going to take what we've learned and kind of build off of it. So I'm actually excited over the next 15, 20, 30 years of my teaching to see what the kids come up with in terms of ways that they can apply this information to be even more efficient and more effective. You know, I, I fully um, volunteer that, um, that they're going to come up with better ways than we have, and I'm going to be inspired by that. So I think the chaining is the short answer, but the long answer is we'll see. You know, I, I think it's all still rather emerging for, especially for performing artists. 
to adopt these kinds of ideas in a very mainstream way. So I'm interested to see kind of where it goes. So I'm curious about the chaining, because I know some people are fans of forward chaining, others are fans of backward chaining. And in my head, I can kind of come up with maybe arguments for either one. And then the one that I was intrigued by, I hadn't heard before, I think you called it problem uh, yeah, goal goal, goal right. is a softer word. So if you say okay. goal chain, right. but really I, you're talking about like where the issue is and kind right. of, yeah. Which in my head seemed more like kind of like an inside out chain, right? You start from somewhere in the middle and then you kind of right. work your way to either direction. Start with um, the meat, add the bread, you know. Right. Yeah. Are there different, um, I guess we can call them the problem areas where forward chaining works better or other places where backward chaining works better? I mean, one thing that, occurred to me as a maybe an argument for forward chaining is and i don't know because i don't play wind instrument or never really sang or anything but when i've talked about this with some people they've they've wind players in particular they've talked about how they have to figure out where they're going to be in the breath if they're backward chaining which can sometimes be tricky because they don't want to start the last note of a passage as if they have a full tank of air and so i don't know you've probably thought about this much more in terms of which works better where and for whom. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I'm kind of curious what you found with the backward and forward chaining. And maybe we should kind of explain what that is in case. Right. Because backwards chaining is not playing it backwards. Right. It's not not what we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. That, that's a fun parlor trick. And if you're into that, have at it. Uh, I am not. Um, so backwards chaining would be like, let's say we're talking about a, a measure, a 4-4 four, four measure of four beats of 16th notes. So there are 16 notes. Backwards chaining would be start with notes 15 and 16, and then when that's going well, start at 14 and play 14, 15, and 16. And then when that's going well, play 13, 14, 15, 16. So you're starting at the end, and you're adding notes kind of in a backwards fashion. Forwards chaining would be starting with note number one, note number one, notes one and two, and then when that goes well, add note number three, when that goes well, add note number four. And so that's how I use the term forward chaining, backward chaining. But you can start anywhere. I mean, you could start at note number seven, you know, particularly if that seems to be this area that's just really tricky to pass on. But you're right. I think for wind players and I think for string players who are trying to maybe gauge where they want to be on the bow, it could relate as well. And so I do think that it requires a bit of diversity. So maybe you get enough information through forward chaining and some other ways to kind of tell where you're going to where you're going to be on the breath i think that if you are at a certain level where you're playing pieces that are that complex you can pro you probably are good enough to be able to figure that out and then you figure out what you want to do on a breath or what you think is doable on a breath or a bow and then you just make that your like little biosphere and you just clean up the environment within that little biosphere. And then this other breath over here, that's its own thing. And, and frankly, when I'm learning a piece of music, I don't learn it like bar lines are not the thing that to me delineate this event to that event. For me, it's breaths. So if I have to take a breath in between beats two and three in a bar, that means that everything before that breath is, is its own thing. And everything after that breath, well, that's the next thing even if it's a quick sneaky phantom breath from a motor standpoint that's that's a different pond and if i need to clean up this pond first i'll clean up this pond first so i think you're right the breathing is important to consider or bowing is important to consider um, and i think from a musical standpoint you know if we're talking about cadence or phrase you know those are concepts that we want to make sure we're baking into our cuisine you know, relatively early, we don't want a thousand reps of mediocre phrasing because then we have a habit of playing it with mediocre phrasing. And then that's going to, we're going to have to untrain that. That could be a whole nother, you know, podcast, I'm sure. But yeah, I, I think that because of that, 
it's important to not get stuck with just one way of doing it. Spend a couple minutes forward chaining something. If you're making progress, great. Spend a couple minutes backward chaining something. If you're making progress, great. Start in the middle somewhere, get make some progress. And and actually, it's funny. I, I think it's a funny story. When I was writing my 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 thesis, I remember thinking like there are so many ways that you could like do this, but there aren't words to describe this. And so my my partner Jean, she was like, "You're a, you're going to be a doctor, mate. Like you decide the words." And then you put them in there and then they become the words because you published it. And I'm like, oh, all right. Yeah, I'm a doctor. I can make words. So I started coming up with like forward proportional macro chaining and like backwards problematic isometric. Like I came up with all these like fancy terms to describe what are actually reasonably simple concepts when you're doing it or when you're looking at it. But on paper, you're like, what? Like, this is absurdly specific. So I have like a chart of all the words that I just, I just made a decision and said, okay, I'm going to call this forward macro chaining. I'm going to call this like proportional micro chaining. I'm going to call this whatever. But I do think it goes back to that idea of like, get creative with it. Like there's so many ways that you could do it. And so if you don't get stuck in one way, you're probably going to be fine when it comes to time to saying, okay, where am I going to breathe? And have I kind of done things that are kind of uh, working against that? But you're right. That's a, you know, it is a big concern. Like wind instruments, like wind is a big concern. You know, string instruments like the bow is a big concern. So can you give us an example of one of your fancy varieties of, of chaining? Oh, geez. <laughs> Off the top of my head. Let's see. Okay. So, so micro chaining, uh, let's go back to that example of there's a measure of 16th notes and there's 16 16th notes in the in, in the 4-4 four, four measure. Forward micro-chaining would be take notes 1 and 2, and then 1, 2, 3, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. That, that'd be forward micro-chaining. But forward macro-chaining might be where you take like full 16th note groupings. So you do 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know. 13, 14, 15, 16, 17 uh, to beat one of the next measure. And so that would be like a macro grouping of notes. And so what you're doing is you're moving forward, macro chain, so that'd be forward macro chaining. For, uh, let's see, backward macro chaining would be 13, 14, 15, 16, 1, or 17, you know, would be like the first group you work on. And then you work on 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, and then you work on 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and then you work on 1, 2, 3, 4, 5. So goal macro chaining might be taking the third beat and then adding the second beat and then adding the fourth beat and then adding the first beat. So if you want to quiz me, that would be um, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and then 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and then 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and then 1 through 17. Proportional chaining, as another example, might be where we're just going to play the first 16th note of each of the beats. So we're going to play 1, 5, 9, 13, 1. And then we're going to play 1, 2, 5, 6, 13, 14. Wait, I screwed up the math. Wait, where did <laughs> I, I go? Im- I was impressed so far one, two, that five, all the numbers six, nine, lined 10, up. 13, 14, 1. And then I'm going to do the first three beats. Bug it up, bug it up, bug it up, bug it up. And then I'm going to do bug it digga 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 up. That might be an example of forward proportional microchaining. Forward proportional macro chaining would be if you're talking about larger groups of notes. So, I mean, you get the idea. You're just, you're adding words to kind of describe um, what that stuff is. This might be a good place to ask about how the metronome fits into this, because I imagine without a metronome, (laughs) 
rhythm could go out the window completely, mm-hmm. potentially. Well, and I think that there are like, I'm for me, and this is because most of my issues in my playing have to deal with like mechanisms and, and, and motor stuff, but also as a wind player. And maybe it's also a little bit about how my brain works, but like everything's with a metronome, everything. And I'll take it a step further to say that I use what I call smart metronomes where there are beats that are randomly missing. And I think that that's important. But before I get to that chapter, I just want to talk about the whole metronome thing. Even just using a traditional metronome, I think, is better than not using anything because I think we are kidding ourselves when we think we're keeping good time. Like time is such a fallacy in so many ways. Like even the concept of like, what is a second? It is this arbitrary amount of time that has been created much like the the fancy words I used in my dissertation. Like, it's just like, we, we basically said, okay, the sun goes, you know, we go around the sun, it's this number of days and the, and the earth spins, or, you know, one day is one revolution for the earth, you know? And so we've come up with these like arbitrary measures that we have created and we've kind of created a way for them to scale, although none of them are perfect. Right. And so we've come up with like what an hour is, what a minute is, what a second is, beats per second. Okay, fine. So let's say we're all using like this atomically calibrated measurement of time, and we'll call it like a beat at 60 beats a minute, one second, whatever. Our human understanding of that from a mental psychological standpoint, or a physiological standpoint, is so biased, given the moment, like when you're stressed, the amount of time that you think is a second is entirely different than when you're relaxed, when you're tired versus awake, when you're performing versus practicing. Um, you know, everything that we think about in terms of time is uh, some people actually think that time is completely related toward a parameterization of a physical movement. Like it takes you a certain amount of time to move. And so the only way that you can keep time is if you're actually moving your body. But even then, those movements are biased and are variable. How fatigued you are, how stressed you are, how tired you are, how hydrated you are. You know, did you stretch today? Is your, you know, is your arm tired from holding your horn up? If so, like you do a tapping exercise, you're going to move at a different rate. And you might think it's the same time. Um, so all of that tangent is just to say, like, we humans are actually horrible at keeping time. And just like maintaining a good steady tempo. And every time anybody's ever been studied... There's always variance. The best highly trained percussionist, A-list studio jazz set drum, drum, uh, drum set players, like there's variation in their time. Um, and it's entire, it's just, it's such a wash. Therefore, I use a metronome just to keep me honest. And I think that, um, it, and some people say, well, it, it kind of strangles my musicality. And I say, well, that's only if you're trying to train how to be musical when you're learning that piece of music. But if you're just trying to learn that piece of music, like as a mechanical technical thing, knowing that you can do whatever you want with it once you have ownership and control of it. Like I shut a metronome off and all of a sudden I can phrase, I can, I can speed up, I can slow down. That's a very easy thing to add once I have total control over that piece of music. So I, I am a huge believer that the more that we do with a metronome, the better we're setting ourselves up to be musicians. You're not going to turn into a robot. You're not going to train out that humanized variants of tempo like that is in us and it's all around us it's going to be a part of who we are so if you train 40 hours a week with a metronome you're still not going to affect that at all all you're going to do is give yourself the tools to play the things that you want to play and play them the way that you want to play them so that's my take on that's my soapbox 
on the metronome. Um, and I wish I had known that when I was younger. But to take it a step further, if it's okay, I do talk a lot about how I think it's important that in some ways metronomes can be a crutch. And I like to use metronomes that have beats that are randomly missing. And the reason I do that is because when we have this, when we offload this source of stimulus for time, like when you basically have a little box that's put in front of you that now tells you where the beat, 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 where the beat is, you have offloaded it on your, from your own body. Like you are no longer having to come up with your own time. You are now just making your movements line up with that time over there. And so that completely changes neurologically, like what's happening. Like the, you can look at the brain activation patterns and it's a completely different thing. And so if we're practicing with a metronome that's giving us all the beats and giving us all of that external you know, source of information, in some ways, we're not developing the ability to make good habits in the absence of that. And, and when we go into an audition, every trombone, like so many trombonists I know, we have to play William Tell, we have to play Hungarian March, you know, and those are more of like the noty, articulative kinds of things, you know, Einheldenleben or Till. There are these passages that are, you know, somewhat quick, right? If you shut that metronome off and then you're, you know, a little heightened arousal because you're in a performance or audition situation, you're going to rush through it. You're going to condense things down. It's a very natural process. Uh, some of that's physiological. So I think that if you are training in a way that kind of forces your brain to be more engaged in that practicing process, you'll be able to take that into the room or you'll be able to take that onto the stage and it'll be a, a greater part of your playing. I don't think there's a perfect answer for timing. I like the fact that timing is dirty and messy, no matter how you study it or how you do it. The greatest performances we've ever listened to, if you went back and tried to put a click track through it, you would find that there are moments where the tempo is not perfect. And I think that's what makes it human. So I think that's great. But I think the methods behind our training just need to be a little bit more updated based on that fact. And so I think on the one hand, yeah, you need to be using some kind of uh, honest keeping device, right? Something that keeps us honest in terms of time. But then to take it a step further, it's great if that device isn't giving us all of the information, just enough to keep us honest. And then we are required to fill in the blanks you know, from like a neurological standpoint. So that's kind of how I look at metronome use. And I think I saw on your blog that there was like the top five metronome apps that that was an article that came out at some point. And two of the five apps I was familiar with, one was Time Guru, and then one was Metronomics. And I know that Time Guru and, and Metronomics, I think because you can do so much with the functionality and the settings, both of those give you the opportunity to have beats missing, whether it's random or it's quasi-random, but it's random enough for you to not really notice. Both of those kind of have that. So I think that we're starting to see that it's, it's, it's getting out there more and more. Yeah, it's probably time to update that article. It's been a while. Is there a particular yeah. metronome app that you gravitate towards generally? Well, so I... Um, there's a trumpet player named Eddie Ludema. And I don't know if you ever, you probably did not overlap with him at IU because I think he started a little after me, but then we graduated at the same time because I was a little slow. I like to say I was a little wide because I did more while I was there, but it took me, I, I did four years of course where most doctoral students do three. And most of them are sprinting for the door. Like they're trying to do as little as possible to get through it as quickly as possible. And I took the exact opposite approach. I was like, how long can I stretch this to like learn stuff? But anyway, Eddie, Eddie and I were there at the same time. And then he taught at Indiana State on you know, trumpet and played in the Terre Haute Symphony. I played in Terre Haute on bass trombone. And so we, we've just been good friends for a long time. But um, he 
in between like rehearsals and concerts would just be doing like web design and computer programming and all that. So that was like his thing. And I was like, hey, we should work together and make an app. And so we did, we made an app and it's called Dr. Drone. And one of the functional, like one of the functionalities in it is uh, you can hit like a randomizer button and it'll randomly silence like what you're given. So it, it's more of a, you can set up little baselines and little drone patterns so you can work on your intonation in the context of, you know, timing and practicing with the metronome. Uh, and then you can remove some of that information. And so not to turn this into any kind of snake oil plug, but um, but I do like the the things that you can do with that program. Like if I'm working on Ride of the Valkyries, I can make a little baseline of the chord progression of Ride of the Valkyries. I can save that file. I can send that file to someone else. And then I can hit a little, it's like a little crown icon, little king, you know, crown icon. And I can... I can toggle that to a certain level of difficulty where some of the beats are just silent and then I have to keep going and kind of line up with it. But in my own practice, so I use the, I use Dr. Drone. I, mm-hmm. I'm also a client, so to speak. The other thing I do is I have Max MSP and that's actually how um, I started doing some, uh, I started designing some timing experiments by using Max MSP. For those people that aren't familiar, it's, I think it's objective C programming, but it's basically uh, like a, an object program where you can take all these objects and then kind of tie them together and, and make things happen. You know, there's some really cool, th- like go look up Max MSP music and there's people doing mind blowing stuff with it. But I created kind of like a metronome program that randomly removes beats and it also plays drones and it's on my computer. And so since I use my phone for either like a video to like look at my embouchure, look at what's going on in my face, or I use it as like a stopwatch if I'm doing, if I'm going to do this for like three and a half minutes, I'll put the clock on. So my phone is usually indisposed in some of my practice. So I just use a Max MSP patch on my computer. I don't recommend it because if you've never used Max MSP, it is a, there's a, it's a very steep learning curve program. It costs like five, 600 bucks, or it's probably even more now. So it's not an advisable, you know, answer, but, but basically to, to give you the quick, I guess none of my answers are quick, but to give you the long answer, um, the app that I use most frequently is that Dr. Drone app. And then, um, I do that, that patch on my computer and that kind of gets me by for a while. So one of the things I'm probably going to do is recommend that everybody watch that video that you put up on YouTube about the, the fast, at tempo practice, just so they have kind of a baseline grasp of oh, yeah. some of the things that we're getting at. But one of the things that kind of blew my mind, because I'd never thought about it, was this idea of slowing the tempo down as opposed to speeding it up. Like that just never would have occurred to me. I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that. And because, um, yeah, that's just such a novel concept to me mm-hmm. that that seemed, again, like it made perfect sense in hindsight. And I think I'd be much more inclined to use a metronome from that perspective yeah absolutely so to to kind of go into that that video a little bit uh what is it called it's fast practice technique yeah it's fast practice technique and in that video i talk about the whole like why you should keep things at tempo and I, the brain and all that stuff um but then i talk about the the process of saying well what if you start learning at something at tempo and you basically get a structure of that piece kind of in place. Like it's not perfect, but you can survive your way through it. Survival is the word that I would use now to describe your level of proficiency on that piece. And let's say it's 120 beats a minute, right? Just random number, 120 beats a minute and, and you're surviving it and it's pretty good. 
So maybe now that the motor patterns are reasonably coordinated and reasonably learned, now if we kick it down to 119, 118, 116, whatever, now all of a sudden you may start to be able to pick up some more nuance of this moment here, that moment there, and you might be able to buff out some of those little nooks and crannies in terms of just really polishing it up to be extra clean. And I think it's it's totally reasonable and it's totally you know a, val- a valid way to do it. But what you aren't doing is starting when you don't have any basic structure of the piece in place, starting at a slow tempo, and then in your first learning stage, putting it in the bank in, in, in just a, a way that's completely out of context. I think instead, having that basic skeletal framework of how you're going to play it and how it goes and having some technical control over it, and then to just slow it down a little bit. And all you're, all you're really doing is, you're, you know, when you slow down events, I don't know if this is going to be in just an audio or a video, but like if you have two events and they are spaced out, when you slow down the metronome, you're essentially putting those two events further apart from one another. So you're, all you're doing is you're giving yourself more time to, to sort out what needs to happen next. And in some ways, we feel really good about that because when we can consciously control and, and have control over knowing what's going on, that's a very comforting place for us to be in our highly evolved brains these days. Like we're all control freaks from a neurological standpoint. Like we want to control everything. But a lot of it, you know, the spoiler is we don't get to control everything. In fact, we don't get to control a lot of it. And I think the interesting question when you start talking about memory is, let's say you learn something. How much of it is just coordinated motor patterns and how much of it is your memory of the coordinated motor patterns? Because theoretically, if you were to learn something at goal tempo and it never actually registered in your memory storage and it never actually got encoded into memory storage, is that still sight reading? Like, are you still just playing what you see on the page, but you have control over those patterns? And it goes into that concept of like, if you're... If you're a studio reading musician and you're reading a piece of music that you've never read before, but you've read notes and you've read pieces so much that you're just looking at it and it just has this abstract representation that's on the page that you just play and you don't even know what notes that was, but you, you nailed it because you, you just know what the symbols look like and you just know what that means and so you just do it. There's no point where you're encoding the language or decoding the language. And there's no point where you're storing it into memory. And so I think it, it kind of creates all these, what I would consider to be really interesting concepts. So, sorry, just to kind of tie into the specific question that you asked. To start learning a piece and to get it basically in place and then to slow it down, I think you start allowing your brain and body to have opportunities to maybe commit a little bit of it to memory, to maybe commit a little bit of it to consciously knowing that it's that A flat that goes to that E sharp. And that's a hard thing. So I have to know that you give yourself moments of these little conscious kind of anchors, like almost like a rock climber with like little holes, like places to hold on to, you know, and those can make the difference between scaling the mountain or not. You know, so I do think that those can be quite helpful. I just don't think we should build up a mountain of those. That's not a sturdy mountain. Like that's not, I, I don't think that's the way. So that that's kind of the difference that I would throw in there. I don't know. Does that help answer it or kind of describe it a little bit? Yeah, totally. Because I mean, I don't know if this is how it works, but in my head, it seemed to me that when you're, when you've learned something, like you said, basically it's playable at tempo, but it's not perfect. And there are lots of things that need to be refined and so forth. When you then slow it down, like you said, it gives you more space to think a little bit more and to make some adjustments and and so forth. But you do so from an understanding 
of what the demands are going to be at tempo, as opposed to making adjustments without a really deep understanding of what the constraints are going to be when you play it at tempo. Mm. So that, again, just sort of blew my mind. And that, that, that is a really cool way to, to give yourself this opportunity to make adjustments, but without sacrificing what's going to be demanded of you eventually. Man, I should just have you translate like everything that I think, because I feel like when I hear you describe it, I'm like, man, that's exactly what I should have said. <laughs> like, it takes me six minutes and then you're like 20 seconds later, boom, here's like the perfectly, you know, parsimonious way to explain that. That's great. Yeah, no, I think you're, yeah, that's, that's it. Well, you know, 10 years of, of trying to condense everything into thousand word chunks of uh, content. Abstract, uh, yeah. Well, so the one last question I had about this, I mean, there's a ton of stuff. I might have to have you back on again because there's a bunch of stuff that I wanted to pick your brain about, but yeah, no related sure. to the, the fast practice. Mm-hmm. So this concept of overlearning, right? We don't want to stop when we finally get the phrase to sound the way that we want just that one time, you know, whether it's doing it another time or another two times or another five times or 50% of the times that it took us to get to that point of competence. Like, how does that fit into knowing when to add the next note into the chunk? That's a great question, actually. And again, here, here, I'm just going to data dump a lot of thoughts on it, and then you'll give us the answer that we need right after. So was it Beethoven? I don't know if it was Beethoven, but somebody said, you know, don't practice something to get it right. Practice something until you can't get it wrong. And that's something that a lot of us have heard, right? I think success needs to be redefined in a 21st century way. And I think that there are many levels of success. And I often use four levels to describe like success. The most basic level of success is sheer survival. Like you survived your way through something. I think that that's a victory, right? That, that, that you're, you're now, you've reached a point that, that matters. Everything before then, you're just trying to get to that point, right? So there's survival. And then when you get a little bit better at it, you're then competent at it. And then when you get a little bit better at it, you're proficient at it. And then when you get a little bit better at it, your, your you know, mastery is up there somewhere. So I, I kind of, for me, I kind of think about it in these four levels. You could put 20 levels together if you want. But for me, I try to boil it down to four. So in these four levels, I think each one of these levels, it's going to have a different answer to that question. So if you're trying to get to survival, if you're whatever is getting to survival, you're going to reach that point And then you're going to say, okay, yeah, let's move on. Let's add another note. Let's go to the next chapter. Let's do the next thing. If you're trying to get to a level of competency, you're, you're probably going to find that it's a different standard that you're holding yourself to before you add the next note or before you do the next thing. And obviously when we get to mastery, you know, it's a different standard. So in practicing, I spend most of my days now trying to get better at operating like my trombone, like my piece of metal. And some of that's based upon the things I picked up along the way, the strengths and weaknesses that I have as a player and as a practicer. And that's just what my needs are now. And I tend to move on sooner than a lot of other people. And I think this goes back to that whole psychological OCD, ADD, explore versus exploit, you know, heuristics paradigm thing, where if left up to my own psychological devices, I will stay and beat a dead horse until it is like, like I, like I could work at a glue factory. I will just keep going until it's pulverized. It's done, right? And I constantly need to find mechanisms and ways in my practice methods to kind of knock myself out of that track and, and kind of like smack my, the side of my head to say, okay, let's move on. So for me, I've over the past five, 10 years, I've really developed 
kind of this habit of just moving on sooner, moving on sooner. Okay, yep, I, I got it. I'm surviving it. Let's move on. Okay, I'm basically getting it. Let's move on. But you may find that for somebody else who's on the other side of the fence where they're just spending their whole time constantly moving on and they, they're not used to mastering things at all, they might have, you know, they might have to develop the ability to stay on something longer and longer. And so I think, I think there should be richness and diversity in one's practicing. I think sometimes you should work to mastery. Sometimes you should work to survival. Sometimes you should work toward proficiency. And so it's going to have a different answer in all those situations. I think we should plan that out. I think we should say, okay, so for today's practice or for this week's practice or this month's, I know I'm going to try to get this to mastery. I'm going to try to get this to proficiency. I'm going to try to get this, you know, to competency. I'm going to try to just get this to survival so that we are experiencing kind of a rich and diverse and robust variety of ways of answering that question. Because I do think you're right. Sometimes it's better. Okay, basically got it. Let's move on. If you got hired by the New York Phil to go play a July 4th Pops concert and you've got a folder and that folder has like 60 pages of violin music and you haven't played 48 of those pieces and you don't know 30 of those pieces you're you're probably going to have to start with just getting through all of it so you get a basic idea and then you're going to go back and you're going to try to you know fill in that nuance wherever you can but chances are if you got called by the new york phil you're you can probably play it all so it's not a big deal but to me that kind of analogy kind of i think describes how i approach it and maybe how i suggest that my students approach it but i definitely you know i do have students that like they haven't mastered anything, and so maybe this you know next month we're just gonna go after this, and we're gonna we're gonna just be exposed to a really high level, and and through that maybe they're working up an audition, maybe it's for first chair in our school's top band, or maybe it's for a summer festival or whatever. But okay, hey, let's take these next six weeks, and let's work on that that mastery version of this, and that means we're gonna do this these three notes for a lot longer before we add that fourth note. And then maybe times in between those events, you know, maybe we, we kind of gravitate more toward uh, just, yep, we're surviving, move on to the next thing. For me, I'm at a point in my life where most of my practicing sounds horrible because once I get to survival, I'm moving on to the, I'm, I'm layering more challenge on top of it. And I find that then when I go play my gigs, the gigs are way easier than the practice room stuff. So it all works out for me right now. Okay, what's the better, quicker, more efficient way to say that? I don't know. That seemed like a good place to attend <laughs> for now because I think if we started to to explore that further, we'd we'd get into a whole other hour of like your practice logs. Oh my and god, I know planning things and and all that. So, and I think that would be great for another time. Yeah, those practice so, logs, man. I sometimes I I, I I shudder sometimes when I share those because I know that for every student, it's like, man, okay, this person knows how to practice. There's somebody else. It's like, oh, I don't want to practice. <laughs> I don't want to be a musician and I don't ever want to give everybody, anybody that impression, you know, that anyway. Well, that kind of took me to the the thing you, you wrote or said in a video about, you know, beginners or at a certain level, they just need to play, right? You don't want to like drag them down with the, the grunt work that practicing entails to really get good at things. And I think that's totally true. I think a lot of times students get discouraged because they start off and it's too, it's like, 
Like you just involved. want to play tennis, right? Like you just want to go out there and whack the ball and yeah, you're hitting it over the fence every other time and yeah. into the net and making a mess, but it's fun, yeah. right? And at some point when you want to have even more fun and get better at it, that's where like you're motivated to really figure mm-hmm. out what do I need to do with my backswing and my follow through and all that stuff. And, it, and that's more motivating at that point. So and I yeah, also so think, I think yeah, that balances out. You know, if you're kind of going to that survival or maybe, maybe for beginners, we can have a fifth category of like near survival, like <laughs> quasi survival. But like when you get up to that point, you're like, okay, let's go to the next one in the book or let's, you know, play this, let's move yeah. that. You can very easily kind of package that in a way to where, yeah, they were successful. And if they get all these little victories and successes, they, they might develop a, an, an, an enhanced sense of self-efficacy. And they might think, oh, okay, I can do this. I must, you know, I'm pretty good at this. All right, cool. It's fun. Um, And then usually for me in my teaching, when they come to me and they say that they want to get to the next level, that's when I give them the red pill. Like that's when I'm like, okay, now we got to look at it this way. With my college students, I, I... I show them the pharmacy and I'm like, here are all the pills and here, here's all the things that we are going to have to get to at some point. But like with young kids, like they don't need, like, it just needs to be a big candy store. Like we're just going to play. Yeah. You can get the full transcript of this week's chat, plus links to various things that came up in conversation at bulletproofmusician.com slash blog. 